I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This is David. This is your new episode of Baselayer. I have Nick Emmons, the co-founder of Upshot with me today. Nick, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So in our world, following NFTs, gaming, all the things that we've been looking at a lot lately over the last year, Upshot is a project that has become very, very interesting to many of those in the NFT space because of issues around price. How do you actually define what a price is? How do you actually know that a price is valid? Very similar to the things that we were kind of dealing with early on in the days of digital assets. If you saw a price on Bitcoin, well, how do you know it's actually the price of Bitcoin? How do you actually validate that? Price discovery is very interesting right now. And Upshot has uh, some several different pieces of analytics that they're working on in terms of creating or understanding value uh, using you know different methods out there. We're going to talk about that, uh, a question and answer protocol. Before we get too far into it, as I always like to say on the show, we, we want to kind of tease people out what this is about, but we want to talk about you and about what you did before this. Very interesting to kind of get to the the catalyst behind Upshot and about the different projects that we talked to. So, Nick, if you could give us a little background, what did you do before Upshot, and how did you get this idea, and how did you start tackling it? Yeah, so prior to Upshot, I was leading blockchain development at John Hancock and Manulife, which are two of the largest life insurance companies in the U.S. and Canada and some parts of Asia. Um, and when I joined. It was during the, I guess, the throes of the last uh, bear market, and um, it was a large kind of risk-averse organization. And so they were very focused on use cases that didn't make a ton of sense for blockchain, private blockchain stuff, moving internal operations onto the blockchain. Um, and so one of my initiatives was to like realign how the organization was thinking about how to interact with blockchain and crypto more broadly. I believe... Public blockchains are what capture a lot of the value of this decentralized technology. So what we did was built, I believe, the first public blockchain project done by a large institution at the time. It was uh, focused around decentralized risk pooling on public Ethereum in partnership with some large projects in the crypto space, other large organizations, and I guess the traditional world. Um, and that's that's what we did. We built a, a whole team around it, got buy-in uh, across every level of the org. And after I left uh, John Hancock and Manulife, I was still really interested in this idea of uh, subjective consensus. I think in thinking about how to solve the issue of decentralized risk pooling or decentralized insurance, it's a lot of thinking about how to bring different actors together in a decentralized setting to reach an agreement on the answer to some subjective question. Is this claim fraudulent? Is this uh, policy uncorrelated enough with the other policies in the portfolio, et cetera? Um, and as a result of this interest, I, I stumbled upon this fairly new field of mechanism design called peer prediction, which 
focuses on just this. It focuses on incentivizing different actors to answer subjective questions honestly. And that's kind of where the initial idea for some of the lower level, level aspects of uh, the Upshot protocol came from. Got it. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. So peer prediction, you know, effectively, as you alluded to, um, is something that obviously you mentioned is a fairly newer field. Um, we have seen in digital assets, other types of iterations around peer-to-peer markets or prediction markets. Zero X obviously came out with their prediction market a while back. You've had um, a few others out there, I think Polymarket and a few others have tried to do this. And so I'm curious, you know, as we kind of get to understand this a little bit more, how does peer prediction work in this particular model that you've created with Upshot? You know, let's go from a, a very basic kind of understanding here. Um, as I said, again, we would go through some of the, you know, kind of mechanics here. So there are groups, there are messages, there are strategies, there are scoring rounds. Let's talk about kind of how you actually start getting a group or those that are obviously trying to give you an understanding of peer prediction capacity. How do you actually start getting those together? I would imagine without obviously knowing uh, obviously too much, because obviously this is still a new project that I haven't necessarily reviewed in kind that when you have a group or you have other, you know, kind of participants in this group that are obviously doing the work of the protocol, that there's incentive models there. So let's, let's break it down. Uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, we can talk about, you know, how you actually get, you know, groups to actually do the work, but let's break it down. So you have the, the, the prediction market there, or you have the prediction, you know, basically of price on, you know, as I said, we're going to talk about NFTs as one of the uses here. So how does it work? How do you get, you know, how do you get to a price of a crypto punk that, you know, those can agree on is actually $3,000 worth of ETH? Yeah, sure. So um, quickly just to uh, lay out a distinction between prediction markets and pure prediction. Um, they are semi-similar in their mechanism, mechanisms aimed at incentivizing actors to answer questions honestly. The main difference is prediction markets rely on this sort of external input that validates whether uh, an actor's uh, kind of prediction in the market is accurate, i.e. the resolution of the market provided by some oracle. And as a result of this, prediction markets are mostly constrained to uh, predicting metrics around things that do have an objectively correct answer. The outcome of a sporting event, the outcome of an election, et cetera. Peer prediction is able to attack the problem of subjective honesty because instead of having this external input that requires an oracle, et cetera, to validate uh, one's response as being honest or not, all we're doing is comparing one person's answers against another's. Um, And so how it works at a high level is you and I may be crypto punk experts and we join the crypto punk group appraising different crypto punks we would appraise a handful of punks and on a regular basis we may be selected to have our answers scored and so what's happening is the that batch of answers we provided the batch of crypto punks that we appraised would be compared line by line 
Um, and then we'd use some novel uh, kind of uh, information scoring mechanism. This, in particular, within the upshot system, this mechanism is called the determinate mutual information mechanism, the DMI mechanism. And we would assess the correlation or lack of correlation between you and I's answers to glean some insights into what honesty may look like, what uh, productive disagreement or uh, misalignment in our answers might look like, what uh, unproductive misalignment in our answers might look like. And as a result of this scoring, we each would get a score, which would represent our sort of payment from the system, and we would get paid. And what makes the DMI mechanism so interesting and really so powerful is that it's the first peer prediction mechanism to be both dominantly truthful, informed truthful, and work within a sort of constant complexity space. So just breaking down what each of those are, a dominantly truthful mechanism means that no matter what strategy you or I play when answering questions, we can't get paid more than providing the honest answer to these questions. And what informed truthful means is no matter what strategy we play, we can't get paid more uh, than answering honestly after becoming informed about the, the kind of correct answer of these questions, after expending the necessary amount of effort to learn what the correct answer is. And what the constant complexity space means about this mechanism is that these properties are upheld with a constant number of actors and a constant number of questions being asked. Whereas before to, to achieve dominant truthfulness and informed truthfulness in previous peer prediction mechanisms, it would require scoring across an infinite number of agents or scoring a finite number of agents over an infinite number of questions. The DMI mechanism solely requires three greater than or equal to three agents being scored, you, me, and one other being scored across a batch of 2C questions, where C is the number of possible answers for a, a question. Yes, no, C equals two. So if you and I are just answering yes or no questions, then we would need to answer four questions across you, myself, and one other. And we have sort of robust truth-telling incentives built around this crowdsourced appraisal platform. So that's a high-level walkthrough of how peer prediction works and how the specific mechanism that Upshot's leveraging works as well. So I'm curious, if you start with a smaller group, I imagine there's more control there. As you get to a larger group, how, does that, how do those variables change? Or as a control group, do you get to have more outliers in terms of questions and answers? You know, If you scale this, does any of that change is effectively what I'm asking. What changes is likely the scale of questions that can be answered, as well as sort of removing some of the noise in one's answers or a, a group's sort of output of answers. If it's just you, me, and another individual answering questions, we're not capturing a very kind of diverse set of perspectives in how we value an asset. But if it's you, me, and a group of 500 other appraisers who are now capturing this diverse set of opinions that can be whose values can be sort of smoothed out in the aggregate of what gets output from that group. But the underlying incentives of the mechanism uh, are upheld to those sort of constant complexity requirements, regardless of how large the group may be. Right. So I want to talk about weight, because I know that's also something that's in this kind of uh, factoring of sure. these scores. So 
let's take an example. There is a group of 10 people uh, that are in one of these in these groups. Um, and we are trying to determine the price of X NFT. It could be a CryptoPunk, it could be ArtMash, it could be a hash mask, whatever it may be. And the one of the people that's in there is actually one of the curators at Christie's. They obviously know, you know, or have been in this space for a number of years, say, for instance, they have years and years of experience in terms of appraisals. Is there a different weight given to those that may have more experience or is it kind of how is a weighting kind of approach in, in these kind of groups? Yeah, so what we've talked about at this point is is mostly around our truth telling incentives, uh, but truth telling alone doesn't lead to accuracy. It's the the sort of combination of truth telling and expertise that that leads to accuracy. So the other things that groups are doing is they're sort of providing their own definition of expertise. What uh, expertise looks like, and this can take the form of anything from a white list of addresses with given weights tied to them to uh, more automated, scalable, but um, notably or notably a kind of increased uh, compl- uh, kind of mechanism of from a complexity perspective of maybe analyzing the transaction graph using some centrality measure used to sort of gauge reputation, such as personalized pay drink. Um, so what we're doing right now, which I believe is a fair combination of minimal and reliable, is assessing the the balances of nfts uh, that are being assessed in a given group across the sort of appraisers in that group so if you and me are appraising uh chromie squiggles in a given group and i may own 20 squiggles and you own five i'm going to be four times as influential in appraising those squiggles uh, as you are and the intuition behind this is that if i've actually gone out to the open market parted ways with my capital to purchase these these uh, squiggles individually, then I we can assume I'm at least somewhat informed in pricing them. I wouldn't be throwing away my own money. Um, and so this is how we're this is sort of our general approach to weighting and reputation right now. But there's nothing stopping groups from saying, here's a Christie's appraiser, we're going to inject some external uh, directive that their answers are weighted at 10 times higher than the, the average appraiser. And we're going to combine that with this reputation mechanism of balance or some other thing uh, that, that acts as a sort of analog for expertise uh, or an indicator of expertise. So, yeah. So I'm curious. So in past iterations around this uh, for reputation, as you alluded to, I've always been very interested in reputation systems. Reputation has always been thought of initially from an economic standpoint in terms of staking. I'm going to stake X percentage of specific token to the protocol. And I'm stupid if I'm, you know, not saying who I am or if I'm a bad actor, that, you know, that stake is then burned if I'm eventually found to be a bad actor. So there's a negative economic incentive there to be a good actor, hypothetically. And so in this particular case, you just alluded to, you know, squiggles. If you know someone owns or has bought 20 squiggles, just to get an understanding of the reputation system more, because I find this vastly interesting how you actually can create you know reputation in decentralized systems, um, where obviously you know there's trustlessness and trust, you know, there obviously is a trust factor too. Um, you know, how do you actually verify that you know if you say you own 10 of these or 20 of these, and obviously that does give you a little bit more of an experience level. 
how do you actually do you have the people or the participants verify that um, by you know showing wallet addresses or something like that? How do you do that? Yeah, luckily this information is all on chain and everyone is identified by their wallet address. So it's it's quite easy to to verify one's holdings of a given asset. That's what makes it such a minimal mechanism. Well, the intuition behind it uh, in in uh, kind of acting as this indicator for expertise and being informed and sort of these open market interactions um, for being a, a reliable judge of reputation. So uh, that's since we are all just addresses and our balances are all accessible on chain, that's a very easy thing to verify. What happens after it, the group has determined or has assessed the the price, the fair value price of an NFT? What happens to that? Where does that go? Where is that? Where is that shown? Is it shown only on Upshot? Uh, is it shown someplace else? Is there an aggregation of that? Where does that go? I believe that you mentioned you, you put it to Skynet, but I just for those that don't know that, where where do those answers go that are finally aggregated together? Yeah, those are the answers in sort of their message form, which is the like I guess lightweight. Uh, data structure for recording these things are stored in a decentralized storage network like Skynet. Um, there's there's really no bias at the protocol level around what the centralized file storage network, however. And um, to access them on chain, it's as as simple as kind of doing a like a a pull of that information uh, around a given NFT from a given group's sort of appraisal of that NFT. And I'm curious for any kind of dispute. So with something like Nexus Mutual, for instance, you know, Nexus Mutual has a, a pool out there of capital where if there's a smart contract failure, obviously then that, you know, they can make claim. The capital participants in that pool obviously look at that from a governance standpoint. Um, and then obviously if they see that there is a claim to be made to be paid, they'll they will pay that. But there is levels of dispute where you know some may say, well, no, there is no smart contract failure in that particular case, and you know obviously the parties that are on the other side say, well, yes, there is. So in decentralized and distributed systems, I think another interesting kind of component is, is dispute resolution. How do you actually deal with that, or have you seen it yet? Uh, and if you haven't, you know, do you foresee that? If you do foresee that, how would you handle that? Yeah, our blanket philosophy around dispute resolution is let the open market be the final judge. I think open market mechanisms are incredibly reliable as being this uh, authoritative arbiter of truth in extreme situations. The reason we can't rely on the open market for everything is because it is a fairly expensive mechanism to use and relies on uh, like several prerequisites that aren't met in every market or in every every space we're trying to reach some some level of consensus in, i.e. when appraising the value of low velocity assets. So the sort of de facto dispute resolution mechanism is if a group of appraisers is egregiously misappraising or, or misvaluing a given asset or set of assets, the open market can just stop asking those appraisers for appraisals. And what that's doing is it's acting as a sort of slash of their stake in the form of their future cash flows. Instead of having these appraisers place capital down beforehand and having that capital pulled from them, if if there is some sort of social decision that they were misacting, what we can do is we can say, you're cut off. You're not 
going to be earning any more capital for your appraisers. You're, you have proven a, a lack of reliability, a lack of accuracy in what you're saying. And so we, the open market, choose not to compensate you any longer. There are more explicit mechanisms we're exploring in the protocol as well, namely around forking. Um, so what we get from each resolution, and, and I guess more broadly, each sort of scoring round, which is simply a batch of resolutions to questions, is this sort of canonical timeline of truth. And what we can do in the case of, of misbehavior, both uh, born from malicious uh, action or apathetic action or, or plain and correct action, um, is we can say, instead of accepting this new batch of resolutions into our canonical timeline of, of truth, into our canonical timeline, we can just point to the previous point in time and say, actually, we're going to be starting from this point, essentially forking away from any bad or, or unreliable actors and, and batches of resolutions from the system, using that as a dispute resolu resolution as well. But in general, this, this idea of cutting off future cash flows as the primary means of punishing a lack of reliability or accuracy is sort of how we approach that issue of dispute resolution and uh, punishing bad actors. You suck at your job. You're not going to get paid. Yeah, um, exactly. There you go. Just a quick question. Um, I saw in terms of how those participants are incentivized with capital, there is UPT, um, which I believe is your native currency, your native asset. Um, this is obviously something that's specific to you, but this is not something that is, again, you know, Nick, you know, understand that people that are listening to this are probably like, whoa, this is amazing. This is crazy. I have no idea what he's talking about, but this sounds really cool. They know about Ethereum. They know about Bitcoin a little bit now. They're starting to learn about Solana and some other different things out there. And so, UPT is your own kind of native digital asset that they can be paid with. Um, what can they do with that? Um, yeah, so what UPT acts as within the system primarily is sort of this additional reputation uh, measure. So when I enter the system, we we're using reputation mechanisms as we discussed earlier. Maybe we're reading the balances of my other, my other NFTs on chain. Maybe we're... Uh, being vouched for by the creators of a group and, and being identified as an expert with some weighting based on that. But what UPT does, because it's being rewarded proportional to my level of honesty when answering questions in different groups, is it reflects my sort of repeated uh, good performance uh, across groups as well. And UPT is weighted alongside the sort of groups defined weight of expertise to decide how influential I am in a group. So if I have proven reliability in providing honest answers to questions over, over a sufficient period of time, and I've earned a, a, a decent amount of, of UPT, my chances of being paid higher levels in these different groups will increase as well. So UPT acts primarily as this reputation mechanism uh, for appraisers within groups. Over time, UPT will take on a more uh, kind of endogenous role to the system as well in being the primary means by which to pay for appraisals, the primary means by which people get paid for appraisals, the uh, sort of main tool for governing the system and its various parameters. But I, I think most importantly, it is that reputation source of uh, repeated positive behavior. It's like a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. um, That's right. 
So where can people, you know, that are listening right now, obviously, probably, as I said, minds are blown, you know, people are realizing that, you know, it's not just a price on OpenSea, for instance, on NFT, there's actually a appraisal system now that's being developed here or that's been developed, um, which I think is incredibly interesting. And hopefully they do. Uh, where can people go now if they had an NFT, for instance, um, and they had something that they wanted to have appraised, where would they start with you? Where would they start their journey? Um, yeah, so they could go to upshot.io. Uh, I'm not sure when this episode is going out, but very soon we'll be releasing our analytics app, which will be this, this sort of authoritative destination for analytics around NFTs, as well as their sort of appraised price feeds. We're updating uh, the appraised prices of, I, I think, a few hundred collections right now on an hourly cadence. So um, people will be able to go there. And if they're looking to kind of check the price of their NFTs of a supported collection on that site, they can do so whenever they'd like. So upshot.io is a good starting point. And then um, Upshot HQ on Twitter is is sort of uh, one our main kind of social destination on social media, and then they can join our Discord as well, which is linked to from both our our Twitter and our website. Awesome, Nick at Upshot again. As I said, this is you know for those that are out there that have just started to learn about NFTs. Everyone at the beginning of the year, especially with people, everyone was you know all you know fired up about NFTs, uh, but now you're starting to see critical infrastructure like this come into play. Uh, that are adding some really incredible, uh, sophisticated analytics to that. I encourage everyone to check it out. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. And hopefully we can have you on again in a few months and catch up. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.